1: That's blue
0: Team Human is an ad-free, listener-supported project made possible by teammates like Joanne, Courtney, Mark Gasway, Joel Calloway, Wolfie, and hopefully you. Just go to TeamHuman.fm and click on Support to find the others who gain access to our Discord channel, my paywalled Medium posts, archives of my writing and conversations, and participation in our live Team Human salons in the Kibitz Room. We're having our next live discussion on December 9th at 2 p.m. New York time, 7 p.m. UK time, and 11 a.m. West Coast time. See you there. You're on Team Human conscious intervention in the machine, an opportunity to say for ourselves what constitutes signal and what constitutes noise, a celebration of the mistakes and anomalous behaviors that constitute life in a reality increasingly optimized for predictable, utilitarian outcomes. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human playing for team human today the filmmaker behind thoughtful pro-human movies including lapsus and the documentary in silico Noah
2: Hutton interestingly those same people who become devotees of the Church of Statistics end up needing to recapture some of the special sauce at some point like like they become desperate for the for the special sauce of humanity in their apps and they're in searching for cre- creatives to start using their tools and you know it's funny how when you go in deep into the world of deep learning, it, it's like dying for artists.
0: Noah will be helping us recognize the power and perfection in what might otherwise be considered our failings and mistakes. It's time to intervene on behalf of people and all living things. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. I've been working on a piece I was originally going to write it for the Atlantic, but it seems like it's going to be easier to write it for a a home audience with, you know, some degree of common knowledge of the kinds of things I'm thinking about. And it's called what's a metaphor. And it's, I guess it's an extension of some of the ideas in, uh, in survival of the richest, which I'm still hoping, um, y'all think about getting because, uh, it'd be nice to have the community <laughs> having read that book i would love it to be part of our uh, our common vocabulary um but this is called it's called going meta let me let me share what i've got so far Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg may one day be remembered less for his social network or his Oculus virtual reality platform than his introduction of the term meta into popular awareness. With two parts desperation over a declining subscriber base and one part hope that he could breathe new life into his dying business model, Zuck announced that he'd be dedicating his time and the company's capital into the supposed next generation. Generation of digital life, Facebook became a holding company called Meta. This notion of going Meta has been around a long time, at least since the first play within a play in Elizabethan theater. But where Meta theater tends to make audiences more aware of the artifice of the play, Zuckerberg's Meta is intended to do the opposite, to fully immerse the user in an alternate digital reality, for in its new incarnation, meta has less to do with dramatic irony than a hunger for transcendence, escape, and dominion that characterizes Silicon Valley Titans from Zuckerberg and Bezos to Teal and Musk. See Survival of the Richest if you want to laugh at how preposterous yet common this mindset has become. Embracing a mishmash of undefined virtual reality and blockchain technologies for the even less defined Web 3., Zuckerberg intends meta to level up the internet and reframe everything we currently think of as digital technology. The same way TV could be thought of as going meta on movies, or Netflix could be seen as going meta on TV, or aggregation platforms like Facebook went meta on individual websites. Meta is intended to just go meta on everything. It's one big map that replaces the many territories. By staking such a claim, Zuckerberg does us all a great favor. He may not be able to build such a thing, but he's revealing the faulty foundations of the Silicon Valley mindset, which is to transcend whatever problems we may be facing by rising above the real world and escaping to the next one, going meta like salvation to a Christian, enlightenment to a Buddhist, or the IPO to a venture capitalist, going meta and operating at least one level above the mere mortals down here on terra firma has become the ultimate goal of any self-respecting tech titan. Conditions on the ground, if they're even acknowledged, are mere externalities to the greater mission to venture beyond our world and to the next one. To Jeff Bezos, the planet on which the rest of us live is simply the solid surface against which his blue origin craft can push against as it journeys upward to the heavens, just as his employees and customers provide the earthly fuel and funding for him to reach escape velocity. He proved he could amass enough capital by going meta on online retail and aggregating everyone else's businesses into one big platform of platforms that he could achieve himself what Americans could achieve collectively over 60 years ago. For Peter Thiel, founder of PayPal and Palantir, going meta means exponentialism, or as he puts it in the title of his business book, rising from zero to one. Adapting his Stanford philosophy, Professor René Girard's theories of mimicry, scapegoating, and Christian ascension to the business world, Thiel argues that the successful builder of the future must operate at least 10x or one order of magnitude above the competition. Competition is for losers, Thiel famously quipped. One must level up instead. It's akin to the digital business phenomenon that tech publisher Tim O'Reilly called Web 2.0. Where developing applications isn't enough for internet companies, they must think of their products as platforms on which other companies' applications can run. Only then are they in a position to commodify everything one order of magnitude beneath themselves. So with examples like this, it's no wonder everyone wants to go meta. But there's also something about this moment in history that motivates the quest for a new sort of escape hatch. The ongoing pandemic, political violence, fear of our own neighbors, and catastrophic thinking, they all combine to make our lives more isolated and digitally dependent. There's been a shift and increase in both real-world threats and virtual opportunities, encouraging us to experience as much reality as possible through the safety of our smartphone screens. From a safe remove, we can control the chaos of incoming symbols through internalized binary switches, friend-foe like, block, woke, maga. The further we can reduce the real world to bits, the more easily we can swipe left and the more we are enabled to escape the complicated mess of reality and go meta ourselves. Besides, in a media environment where digital symbols dictate activity in the physical world, reality doesn't stand a chance. Derivative financial instruments and ultra-fast trading so completely dominate the stock market that the New York Stock Exchange was actually purchased by its derivatives exchange in 2013. So the stock market, which was already an abstraction of the human marketplace, was consumed by its own abstraction. Or consider Bitcoin, the crypto funeral pyre through which we prove our devotion to a coin by burning what is left of the planet's limited energy store. We don't do this proof of work to accomplish or serve any function other than to prove we have done it. It is quite literally the process through which we convert atoms to bits, reality to its metastasizing counterpart. What distinguishes such efforts from their real-world analogs is their utter disconnection from the ground and disregard for whoever is living back there on it. In Zuckerberg's demo of Meta, virtual people float around with nothing from the waist down. Legs are coming next year. It's a paradise for anyone who doesn't want to deal with the soil, friction, or genitals, not to mention the tent villages of homeless people on the edge of Facebook's corporate campus. Like transhumanist Ray Kurzweil uploading his brain to Google's processors or tech investor Sam Altman migrating his consciousness to an AI cloud, the dream is to transcend the chrysalis of matter and metamorphose from nature into the technosphere. But the implications, they may be more profound and hazardous than ditching one's vinyl Beatles albums for a Spotify account. First off, unlike an old record collection, the natural environment and human condition can't simply be relegated to a dumpster. Yet the exponentialists have cherry-picked from another half-baked philosophy, effective altruism, to justify exactly that. As best as I can cobble it together from Elon Musk's and others' tweets, as well as the writings of philosophers Nick Bostrom and William McCaskill from which they're cribbed, we can eschew the the -the on-the-ground reality of today's 8 billion or so humans, for the benefit of the future trillions of humans and human-based AIs who will spread throughout the galaxy once SpaceX develops a decent warp drive. The ends justify the means, especially when the ends are meta. Well, that's as far as I got this week. I'm going to write next week about, about what happens when we're keeping our eyes on the, uh, the omega point at the end of the strange attractor at the end of time uh, rather than conditions on the ground and see uh, well, how we might be able to kind of reframe this conversation back to uh, what matters in matter rather than uh, what doesn't matter after matter. All right. <laughs> Thanks. Noah Hutton is a writer and director of documentary narrative films. He actually reached out to me because he recognized some ideas in Team Human that resonated with what he was discovering in his own work. Specifically, the idea that part of what animates and drives life, and humans in particular, are the errors— How do you know something is made by hand except for the imperfections? How does something evolve except by making what may at first appear to be mistakes? What is the signal and what is the noise? And does a world dominated by the values of auto-tuning lose track of that? Noah's 2021 sci-fi feature Lapsis was nominated for a spirit award and opened at south by southwest it's a beautiful understated fantasy about the ultimate gig work reality and his 2020 documentary in silico followed a 10 year project to simulate the human brain on supercomputers spoiler alert they did not succeed but Hutton sure did, and I'm really glad he reached out. This is a weird way to start, but you actually reached out to me because you saw how much your own work and stuff resonates with my work and stuff. I mean, and you've been at it for years now, as have I. And I looked at a bunch of your work. I'm not finished with lapsis yet. I'm, I'm three quarters of the way through of this cabling adventure, which is available on on. Apple that's where I got it for like three ninety five I rented it as a movie and watched it on my big monitor. It's kind of cool, but it's a beautiful little movie and it's not what what I actually want to talk about is the movie before this a documentary you did called in silico but where do you see your overlap what what attracts you to the sort of the team human meme and and how do you see your work kind of promoting this this uh humanism in a digital age? I guess you've been particularly acute in your
2: defense of the human in an age when sort of everything is coming for the human technologically speaking and mm. siphoning the the sort of nobility of of biological life with terminology like neural networks and you know deep learning and so i i've been somewhat critical maybe not so much in the films we're going to talk about but um just overall about the use of biological language to describe our technologies. Mm. You know, when I when I saw you talking about the soul um in these last years, I, I just felt such a resonance with sort of Aristotle's notion of formal cause. And I and I mm-hmm. and I just I just love the the way you remind everyone of the humanness of of human in an in an age where we're we're often meant to think that computers have caught up in many ways to, to where we are and have are soon to overtake us. I think it's just so important to draw some lines in the sand and to mm-hmm. give some dignity back to people because they deserve it.
0: It's interesting. You use words like, you know, dignity and nobility. And then when you talk about lines in the sand, I go straight back to like the Bible, Right. Lines in the sand, the original sand, you know, out in the desert. You know, the, I keep thinking about the, you know, the Israelites fighting for human dignity, you know, against Pharaoh and the death cults and the way that, you know, at least what that religion was trying to teach. I think they, they may have, mainstream Judaism may have lost the plot a bit, but the, the what the religion was trying to teach was that once you have an idol or an icon, and you project or you anthropomorphize it or you see it as as human you can you can lose track of what the human is you know <laughs> and it's, it's, and, and yeah, it's worse. yeah that's true it's worse it's like i I remember in the early tech days we used to like put like rabbit ears on a mac classic you know you have a name for it your name for a car and it was sweet but no one really took it that seriously it was more like superstition but now it's like i feel like the computer puts like a little rabbit ears on us you know it is literally with your instagram you got your filter and it's like oh look at that cute little human
2: (laughs) that's right that's right. That's kind of like you. You have this concept. You talk about technology auto tuning humanity,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: that's that's exactly that. I, I, I love that idea, and I feel like that's that's all around us. It's it's almost like the danger these days is is us getting dragged down to to some level, right? Yeah,
0: I know. Like it used yeah. to be, I'm scared of the machines are going to be too smart, right, overtaking us. It's like yeah, people just being too stupid. It's <laughs> it right, just. Right. <laughs> That's the machine's right. real plot. Not to get smarter right. than us, just to make us dumber than them. That's you know, right, That works. might be the way to
2: win. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly.
0: Whatever, the other thing is like, and I haven't seen the end of it. Neither of film gets into this, your movies gets into this directly. But when you're speaking, I, I'm reminded of um, I had a, a long. Time resistance to both McLuhan and Postman as media theorists because both of them ended up falling back on religion as some mm. sort of a defense against technology, you know, or spirit. And there is this place when you use words like dignity and nobility, it's either like, oh, so there's a queen that gives us nobility, or what gives you dignity? What makes humans or life somehow? something other than silicon and some other emergent intelligence is in some ways you got to go back to faith. You know, the only thing, the only thing we really have over tech is our faith that we are something other than tech.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. That, That I guess is the question for us in a, in a rather atheistic age is to, is if it's not religion, what, what is the ennobling factor? What gives us the dignity in our humanity? And for me, um, in the documentary in silico it's this concept of of noise weirdly it's mm. the stochasticity there's so many words for it. i mean noise stochasticity randomness error you know there's a there's a entropy there's a way in which that became for me in that project a very i'm very sort of mystical feature of life mm. that um i don't i actually is the line ultimately a line in the sand for me it's what gave me Hope leaving the project that technology is not coming for us anytime soon. And we can get into, you know, more specifically uh, all about that. But that was actually a nice thing to come to at the end of a decade of making a
0: film. Yeah. No, that was it's a really deep movie. I mean, it was very, very, very trippy for me. For, for people who don't know, it was basically one of these. It reminds me of like when Rick Linkletter does a movie over like nine decades or seven up or 21 up, you know, one of those. So this was. Ten years following one project, right? It's basically the brain, the, the the digital brain project in in the UK or at Oxford or something, right? Is
2: it's, it's uh, originally the the Blue Brain Project in Switzerland and mm. led by a scientist named Henry Markram, and I he he gave basically this all started because, uh, rightly so, I was swept away in my twenty two year old sort of like on awestruck state by a Ted talk at that time in 2009, Ted, Ted sort of occupied a bit of a different place, I think, in the cultural landscape. Right. Yeah. You know, and so maybe it's not exactly where it was then, and they're still around, but I was just coming out of college. I was hit at the exact perfect moment. I had read this guy's papers. I had studied neuroscience as an undergraduate student. Mm -hmm. I was enamored by him as a biological scientist. Then he gives this Ted talk And he says, you know, in the TED talk, he says, I'm going to simulate a human brain in 10 years. I'm going to send a hologram back to TED to give a talk in my stead. And the crowd goes nuts, you know, and I hear it and I'm starting to get into documentaries. And so I I basically decided to attach a 10-year documentaries timeline to his 10-year brain simulation timeline.
0: You just emailed him and
2: said, I want to follow you over 10 years. I emailed a couple times to get a response, and there was a NYU neuroscientist, Joe Ledoux, who I had done. A, I did a music video for his rock band, the Amygdaloids.
0: Oh my and god!
2: Just you know, a random. <laughs> you a did random, a, video,
0: a video, for a neuroscience teacher's rock band. Okay. That's right. right. That was a
2: real kismet Beautiful. moment because then, uh, yeah, because apparently. then, um, Joe uh, emailed Henry <laughs> in this small world of elite neuroscientists and said, "Hey, I can vouch for this kid." I, I know he wants to make this documentary, you know, you should let him, whatever. So he, they, I got access um, by the help of Joe Ledoux. And um, I went over there and, and I, st- I started making these yearly trips.
1: Right. I
0: was figuring you had it. You're not going to just live there for 10 years. No,
2: it was wild. First
0: of all, the Swiss franc
2: yeah. is, is a, it's not a great conversion. It was very expensive. And um, yeah. I could only go for about three or four days. I was paying for it with, like, freelance, you know, videography work. So. So that was where it started, and I started, but I started from this very awe-inspired, zero criticism place, and mm. probably probably good because I probably wouldn't have started making the film had I had the crit- critique I have now. So, on one hand, that kind of critical free thinking allowed me to dive in fully and commit my own resources to following right. what I thought was this incredible project, you know.
0: Right, that you really believe – and it sounded to you like in 10 years he was going to send back something, some kind of hologram that was going to then interact and maybe pass the Turing test with these people.
2: Exactly. That was the promise. You know, he had a a set set of milestones to get there. And I thought, well, even if it's not a a full human brain doing a Turing test, maybe, you know, it's going to be something. This is huge. This guy is legit. He's getting all this money. The IBM supercomputers have been committed. I'm going to see what happens. Something's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. And I I you know, it took it took a few twists and turns from there. Yeah.
0: And then rather early on when you're sort of going through kind of the evolution and development of life, you know, of life and consciousness, it feels almost like you happen upon a discovery or or an assertion that the way life develops is through errors, and I'm sure everyone's listening, going, "Oh, duh! Of course, that's what it is." But I had never really thought of evolution as errors. I always think of them as wins. You know, it's like, "Oh, you got gills, so you knew how to breathe, and you got hands, so you know how to do that." But it's actually there was like error in the system, and it just happens that that error turned out to be good, right? That it worked. But the way that you know, what what you kept coming back to in this movie is like, for me anyway, and I'm watching it in my own strange, trippy way, but the way you know something is truly alive and conscious is that it makes mistakes.
2: Yeah. That's so <laughs> crucial.
0: <laughs> But it, right? does, so it cuts crucial. across every wrong theory of society. Like, uh, you know, the human beings make uh, rational economic choices. It's like, of course not. If we made rational economic choices, we'd be stocks. You know? Right. <laughs> That's
2: right. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't it funny? I think I think that the logic of sort of capitalist economy has so pervaded our thoughts, even about are the way biological evolution unfolded. That we right. have a kind of like rise and grind mindset about Darwinian evolution, where it's like, no, every organism was just rising and grinding every day, trying to find its win, and it's like, right. no, that's I not I how I it I went. Right, like little yeah, penguins. That's, like, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it's like no, they actually they were they they, they were rising and making mistakes, and then th- this this blind force was selecting for these for so, you know. So I I think that's just a wonderful reframing of evolution that I for me was a seismic shift in in thinking maybe that is yes maybe that is very obvious for many people
0: right but it but it's not it is a seismic shift it is because then it's like the thing that was so seismic about it for me it's like if you're going around the world trying to figure out what's alive what's alive you're just like looking around like the world's almost dead you're just looking for living things you look for anomalous behavior it's like that's how you know that there's human will in it. Right. It's like, you know, and then it goes, it's, I was watching and I started to think, oh, that's what Adam and Eve's story was about. That's why they got to take the, the apple from the tree. They had to do, how do they know they're alive unless they do something wrong? Right. So right. God sets up this thing. It's all perfect. There's one thing you could do that's wrong, and that's take right. a bite of that thing. And you get knowledge. Right. You're going to get knowledge from that, but it's wrong. And of course right. they go do it because they're fucking alive. You know, and it was like, oh, you figured it out. You figured out the secret of life. It's doing. <laughs> Wrong.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's right, and and one you know an important thing is like in a way what's wrong and right in those situations like they're just doing different things. Some things are more successful and they get selected for whatever. But I think it's helpful to use the the terminology wrong or mistake or error because we do live in an age where we are building perfect machines that we say are emulating life. So it's important, and every time there's a mistake in code. We get rid of the mistake, we we hide it, we get rid of the we debug, you know, we right. cleanse the the mistake. So I think it is actually important to use that language because cleanse.
0: I love the cleanse. We bug cleanse cleanses. the mistakes in humanity as well. And, yeah. and yeah. we know where that goes. But yeah, right. that we 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 debug it. But the other thing is that that there's a difference between a mis- the kind of mistake that we're talking about here and what computer people would call noise. Noise is that's right. like random. Noise is what you throw on like when you're trying to make a font look smoother on a cheap right. computer. Back in the old days, they threw right. random pixels. It was called anti-aliasing. Random pixels to make it look rounder to the eye, sort of blurry to make it look round. When you want an AI to seem more human, you have you throw in noise, literally noise, randomness to make it seem more human. But the in the humans, that's not randomness that's actually there's something motivating it usually there's something going on it's just you it just wasn't what we had a metric for at that particular moment
2: that's right what's the who are we to decide what the signal and the noise is right in, right in biology so you're absolutely right there's two there's two different things going on there and they throw noise in this brain simulation i've made this film about you know they they have very sophisticated they call them random number generators that they they use to throw, and they call it jitter, in, in these biological networks to kind of give them what they perceive to be the right amount of noise. And there's a crucial moment in my 10 years of making this film and that I, appears in the final film. And it's sort of like, for me, it's the most important moment in the film. And it's finally, I'm, I'm pursuing this story about the variability in biology and how it's going to be captured in in the machines in the simulation of the brain, the perfect simulation of the brain. And I I asked one of the junior scientists there, how do you capture the right amount of variability? You know, how how do you put the right amount of jitter in? How do you know it's Mm. the right amount of randomly generated numbers that you're throwing into the simulation? And she kind of looks at me for a second. She goes, well we i guess we could never know what's the right amount you know and it was the first crack in this edifice of kind of like silicon valley entrepreneurial puffed up we've got everything we we've got a vision we just need the money to 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 do it and give us 10 years and and no questions asked it was the first moment someone give give a little bit of a, a sign that there was a sort of mystery and a and a deep unknown at the core of the question they were trying to answer
0: right well that's not the same year though that that there, there was one year where the guy wouldn't talk to you but he was kind right. of shaved. it's like we could not get He did not speak to us this year it's like you came over it was your one yearly thing to meet this guy you're making a 10 year movie and he is so in imbe- was that the same year as that or that was a different year but it was the same that, energy that, yeah. that was slightly
2: before that but it's kind <laughs> of yeah but he, so i got stood up by him after, you know my <laughs> yearly trip And it was, uh, it's honestly, getting stood up was what set me on this path of having to like find something else I was interested about to keep making Mm. this film. I got kind of like bored. Right. I kept kind of getting the same answer every time I would go there. And I didn't really know what was going. I didn't know. I I certainly knew that at this point, they weren't going to get a human brain at the end of the decade. So I didn't really know what I was arbitrarily pinning my own decade on at that point. So I kind of needed a new direction. And I got interested in this question of of noise as my Mm. sort of my central thesis moving forward. So yeah, then I went and asked her that question and, and got that response.
0: Which is beautiful. I mean, and then it's also, I mean, not to get too uh, uh autodidactic or whatever it is about it, but you as the human filmmaker represented the noise in their system. Do you know right. what I mean? <laughs> you get you get that sense that after a while, it's like, oh my gosh, they're being observed, you know, and they're aware that they're being observed. And it's like, oh, they're little perfect Their little perfect world is like. I mean, of course, they had to answer to funders too. I think was their biggest sort of obstacle. So if like if they're not really doing it, not like it's not they're going to lose it over ten years. Although they had to reapply, but it's like, yeah, the hubris. I mean, that's the that's the other beautiful thing in the story. This guy who really does start out. You think of him, and nothing against him. You think of him as a pure, just genius scientist. You see how how the hubris takes hold, you know, I mean, in any of us, but it does because you just think you're right. And you got all these machines and money and stuff and models. Yeah. But there's, you know, that's not all, all scientists
2: don't do that when they, when they get funding, there's, there's a certain personality type that Mm. turns off towards criticism and doesn't incorporate, doesn't have dialogue with dissent and sort of um, that doesn't tolerate you know,
0: error. That can't dwindle.
2: Right. Exactly. To, to, we can extend this metaphor yeah. all across, up and down the, the the project and the thing it's building. But they didn't tolerate the error of dissenting opinion. You know, looking to build consensus was, was sorely missing. And, and it led to this giant open letter and 800 scientists, you know, signing on to say that the direction of the project was uh, misguided and that the funding was being Misallocated and huge rupture, and that that was sort of the the midway point for me and and he was booted from what was then called the human brain project. It was a billion euros to do this in Europe. and um Henry Markram, the scientist I was following, left and you know went back to his own project and that's uh, soon after that is when I got stood up and had to find all this you know my own interest in in noise and so forth. but yeah that that metaphor kind of goes all the way up and down
0: the whole thing, right. and it's where. Where humans get in trouble is when there is no room for error, because practically speaking, human beings probably are in error, right? <laughs> right, <laughs> we're this right. anomaly, we're this mistake. But like, as a filmmaker, I mean, as a, you're a filmmaker, I'm a I'm a book writer. I mean, as a book writer, I've survived within the margin of error on the balance sheet of the publishing company. Right, Mm. they're publishing companies in the old day. They weren't weren't even on computer, much less part of giant corporations. You know, you know, Bantam and Doubleday or Dell. They were not part of Random House, which was part of Bertelsmann. You know, they they were weird little places. And your book made money, or it didn't. And it's like, no, it didn't make money. But don't worry about it because this one, Angela. I remember when they told me Angela Lansbury's autobiography made a lot of money, and it's okay. We're sort of. spreading it around. It's okay if yours didn't, it's fine. You know, they always, there was wiggle. You know what I mean? It was like nobody noticed you kind of had enough margin of error that that a lot of us could just live in those spaces. We just, that's where we, that's where art happens. You know, there's like a, your uncle. Oh, he's not using the bar anymore. Well, if I happen to leave the keys on the coffee table and you happen to use it for a play, who am I to know that you did a play in the closed bar? You know, which is what we did. And it's like, do you have a fire license or this? It was like there was just we lived in a world where there was just wiggle room. And I right. feel like somehow capitalism and technology are combining to take all that, all that away. That's you know, I'm watching your poor guy, this poor dude in your movie lapses. It's like, you can't get away with anything in the, his world. You try to lie down for, to, to catch your breath, and your little machine in your pocket says, "You know, you know, you know, rest tonight. Rest tonight. You know, don't rest now. You know, that's good. Push your limits. You know, and again, it's capitalism and technology. It's like the balance sheet of capitalism, where everything is accounted for, and even scarier surveillance potential of technology combine to really." make error if you want to call it that to make noise to make humanness illegal (laughs) yeah right
2: (laughs) right right and and it's it's sort of you know another aspect of this which involves the kind of erasure of error is um that i get into the film is the idea that when you when you simulate the brain in this in this big project they're trying to do and you know that is ongoing that certainly didn't get to the finish line for this film but imagining that if this did happen, and you get a, a generic model of the brain, like whose brain is that? And that's a unique question that we haven't been faced with yet. Like, you know, there it's kind of like a, a march forward to it, just like we did with the pacemaker, you know, we we kind of get a model of an organ. And that's great that that seems that makes much more sense for the heart. I get that We we could want like sort of a healthy, safe, productive, ideal model of a heart. And then you kind of march that forward to, okay, but let's, we'll just continue and we'll do the brain.
0: Yeah. You go to the, but go to the brain supply and get Abby normal. Remember? <laughs> right. <laughs> right.
2: right. <laughs> so like what, what, you know, no, no, nowhere was I hearing conversations about what the human brain is, what, what, who's, whose brain is that? Right. And there's such a assumption that's made every, every little decision you make on your path to, to making a model of anything. But when it is the seat of humanity, you've decided what the normal middle of the bell curve is for all these tiny little properties on your way to deciding the normal of the middle of the bell curve brain as a whole. And that, that's a profound process that I think is ahead of us. That isn't so sci-fi because I think it'll, it'll happen, much sooner, without having to build a, f- a full digital simulation of the human brain, we'll just get that process happening for you know d- various traits before the whole.
0: Well, you don't need a human brain. I mean, you yeah, won't right. get a human brain. No, a human right. brain needs a human body, needs a the human soup, the human the the environment in which the brain lives. You know, right. is the nurture of that organ. So when they're building a brain, you're building they're building a computer brain, right? It's a different. That's
2: right. Thing. It it is fundamentally different, yeah. They talk about it like it is the biology.
0: I know, and that's what I always want. Do they talk about it as biology because that's what they believe, or because that's like their their marketing? I remember Luke, who who the, our engineer, he got me on this panel at IBM Watson, and they kept mm-hmm. saying, "Well, you know, Watson is sixty percent sure of this, and Watson seventy percent sure of that." And I'm I like. Know. I get the 70%, but Watson's sure? Does Watson have an experience of confidence? And it's like, oh, well, that's the language you're using. I said, why is that the language you're using? Isn't that a little, oh, so people could understand. No, it's not so people could understand. It's so people can believe something that's not true.
2: Right. It's fascinating, isn't it? It, Yeah. It's like like now these days i just i just noticed in the last couple months watching sports different sports tennis basketball football and across all sports now they bring in and i think it's watson i mean they bring in ai to say there's a 17.9% chance of this field goal being made from this thing and then the kicker kicks it and misses <laughs> they go yeah, well yeah. watson pretty uh, and and you know same thing that's and, and so bettors, cut, i
0: think that's people <laughs> betting on the side or whatever right but maybe yeah, a side, i know what you but, mean all that but yeah and then you try to watch a, a baseball game now and it's like because they have all this data on where people's balls hit they reposition they call it the shift and you right, shift that, right, the outfield right, and the right. infield around so the guy is standing right. there and sure enough usually the guy hits it and then the fielder just has to put his glove like Two feet high and it's there. You know, it's like, right. You, right.
2: So you watch baseball. Do you like the idea yeah. of getting rid of this, no, the, the whatever umpire it is, behind no. on plate? No, that,
0: okay. no, no. That's, Cause that's coming, right? Didn't they? Fun. I heard they say that this is yes, the last year wrong. of the strike song. It's, wrong. it's yeah. bad. It's bad. Yeah. It's bad because, ah, ah, because they're, those guys represent the law. You know, these are human beings. They're, The umps are a team on the field who are trying to do another thing. I mean, it's like, if it's just right or wrong, you kill so much. I mean, how the catcher shows where the ball was. You know, the guy makes it it's a little bit off the plate and the catcher you catch it in a motion so that you end your catch behind the plate and create the illusion that it was behind that's the game that's part of the it's not cheating it's the game you know and and i would argue getting rid of the umps is what you do in a fascist society
2: (laughs) I like that. I agree. I mean, I I think it's so profoundly boring to get rid of the human element in these situations. I think the same is true for tennis. I don't know if you if you watch tennis at all, but now they get now they've gotten rid of the line judges, so that when the huh. ball, you know, when so the ball, then Bobby
0: McEnroe, how do you get a Bobby McEnroe? I mean, it's from my youth. This guy, he was this little angry tennis player. He would like throw his 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 tennis racket at the guy up on this. There they were, these judges. They were like. Yeah, on the line where the where the net is, and they're up on like lifeguard chairs, and right. he would like throw his thing and throw his racket right. at these guys, and throw a tantrum. What's he going to throw a tantrum at a computer, at a laser? Right.
2: No, I know. What do you What do you even look at? What who do you argue with? You're just sort of in alone. <laughs> it's profoundly isolating. <laughs>
0: Right, and it's all wrong. I mean, then it just encourages us to do that in life, and then to use like algorithms instead of judges. And the algorithms end up not just not just more racist than the original judges on whom they're based because they've iterated their racism. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, right. That's the the dark truth
2: is that is that they actually end up regressing society, not right. But yeah, and and that's where we end up with this brain model we're talking about is that you end up getting when you when you get a normative model of what the human brain is in this case. What metrics do you do you derive from that, that then get used in like calculating your, you know, your it's whether you can get a mortgage or not. You know what what, what goes into that. You have your credit score these days. You have you know various other metrics that are ca- used to calculate whether you're, you know, able to to get a, a loan or something.
0: Right, your FICO score, which is still based yeah. in some of the the greenlining algorithms from you know right. from the segregation era
2: right so we're just so it, it feels very much like the momentum is towards throwing in normative models of of the body when as this technology goes into the core into those same conversations and that that i think is the line in the sand for me but the the reason why i think it's exciting to draw the, land in the si- line in the sand and ennoble the human again is that they, these models won't capture the noise, and I think that's why they won't succeed. And I think that's a good thing <laughs> because it protects us from having a normative model of the brain decide whether we get a mortgage or not.
0: Right, and it's partly because you know the science people, you know, for lack of a better lump to throw people in, the science people are uh, uh, have faith in kind of the predictive value of statistics, you know, and they can say, and it's honest to say, look. If you go do that, you know there's a ninety percent chance you will fail if you do that. So do this instead. But life, Judaism, Christianity, America, uh, d- digital things—we're all based in one of those ten percent people going and fucking doing it anyway. It's like right. There's a yes. There's a ninety percent chance right. I will fail, but I want to try it. Let's just right. see what does this right. button do. You know, and it's that. That's what makes life. That's but oddly enough, it's like the 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 tech entrepreneurs who took wild crazy bets become orthodox members of the statistics and probability community as soon as they've had their success. It's like, and that's and that's that's odd. You know, that's the machine learning universe that they're where we're talking about moving into. Yeah. You know, and I guess yes and it's hard. They could say I understand it's unethical to do anything else. You know, but without that 10% room for anomaly, for noise, for innovation, for the path less traveled, we don't make any progress at all.
2: Right. And when and interestingly, those same people who become devotees of the church of statistics end up meeting to recapture some of the special sauce at some point like like they become desperate for the for the special sauce of humanity in their apps and they're in searching for creatives to start using their tools and you know it's funny how when you go in deep into the world of deep learning it's like dying for artists it's like these these art deeply learned art tools need to mine artists work in order to generate all these images we're seeing and they wouldn't be able to otherwise so there's this sort of a massive ip problem too i think in that sphere because where does the special, where does the special noise come from? If it's not mined from the people who still are are operating in that space, you know?
0: Well, then they, they'll go to South America and do some ayahuasca with someone. It's like, you know what I mean? They're so desperate for noise there that, that they've got to get it in one big $5,000 mega dose, you know, it's like, (laughs) okay,
2: here's just just inject some
0: novelty into this dead brain.
2: That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oi. Well, oh, wait. and and I mean without giving anything away, there's a character in your your newer movie, Lapsus, which is a I would call it a a human-scaled science fiction movie. It's sort of um when I say human-scaled, I mean more like kind of like the Alex Garland scale of movie or Alex Garland. I would say Alex Garland meets fast-moving Tarkovsky.
2: Wow, that's I t- I'll take that. You know Thank what I mean?
0: Because yeah. he made this movie called, um, what was it called The Stalker?
2: Stalker, yeah. I, yeah. I watched that. I watched that before I made this movie. It was a big influence ah, for sure. So yeah. There. So yeah. it's not
0: totally stupid. You know what yeah. I mean? There's a stalker element to this sure. to this movie. Stalker. It's not about a stalker like a, a, a what we think of a stalker. It's about this guy who can take people on trips through a a strange kind of a post nuclear area or maybe post nuclear area of of Russia, where like weird, like laws of physics don't really work and he can kind of walk you through there. It's this weird, it's, he's, he's just a weird filmmaker, but it's wonderful stuff. So uh, on some level, this movie would work with or without the technology. The technology becomes a metaphor in some ways for, you know, a a certain approach to civilization, but there's a character, the brother of the protagonist has a sort of an Epstein, a, a fictional Epstein bar, like, disease that you know we we must believe is whatever the 5G towers are doing to us it's this you know it's like hive collapse you know and and a lot of i know a lot of people who have it and i don't have it i don't like to think too much about it but i get waves of it i've i've experienced waves of i mean i used to call it present shock for that book but waves of digital nausea almost. Uh, and I don't mean to be superstitious, and I don't mean that I feel it from the cell tower, but I kind of empathize with nature being disturbed and and fried, you yeah. know? I mean, I get burned out by my work, but there's this other level of fry, yeah. you know, which is the other threat, right? It's not just being neutralized by the balance sheet, There's no room for noise, but it's almost on a, I think what you're trying to communicate is that then on a biological, on a cellular level, we need to enact this noise and it's getting overwhelmed. Like the, like the sounds of the whales in the ocean are overwhelmed by our Navy sonar bullshit stuff. They can't even hear. They're like going crazy down there. Right. Like our, our little bodies are doing that too.
2: Yeah, and and the cause is non-specific. We can't say it's the towers. We can't say it's you know the Wi-Fi router. It's because ultimately it probably isn't one of the things. If it's any of that stuff, but yet it it kind of could be all of it together in a non-specific, multi-dimensional way. You know, I in the film there's a I, yeah, I purposefully I wrote it as this kind of malaise that it also I think was drawn from you know people's struggling with CFS, a chronic fatigue syndrome and chronic conditions that are related to that which uh, often people are ridiculed for because they you know sort of made to feel like they're it's Big all psychosomatic disease. yeah yeah so i i just believe that in our world today there are s- these these multivariate you know components that are affecting us in ways that we will never maybe unlock this combined with that this thing we're eating combined with this frequency we're receiving and it's so complex and it's it's hard not to get your tinfoil hat on and and decide you think you know what it is because you want to assign cause and effect somewhere but uh that's that's another thing that's so yeah blame is. right? Oh, it's cause bill and gates effect. with his exactly. thing of this yeah yeah and that's another thing that fries you because you it's hard you can't really you know you you can't do the research to figure out if it's the ta- the the five g tower how are you where do you even start as an individual you can't isolate a you can't yeah. isolate a, a cause anymore because we're in this in this soup right so that that i that was something I was trying to capture was not just the actual syndrome itself which is, is probably real but the malaise of of trying to figure out what it is and being re exhausted, you know, invigorated and then re exhausted by the, the pursuit of truth for yourself as an individual, making sense of all of this. So that's in the film. Yeah. And it all, it's a condition we called Omnia and yeah. we made the film in, um, 2019. And then, uh, you know, the film was released in, in, right in the midst of the pandemic. A couple of people, when they were reviewing the film, called it like the Omnia thing, pressing of COVID. And it's like, not what you want to hear, really. It's like, that's, not, <laughs> I didn't, that's not like a, I, it's not a positive thing. I think I, it's like, oh God. But that's, yeah, that is part of the the story.
0: I mean, anyone who hasn't seen this movie won't know what I'm talking about. But but basically, in in, in lapses, the, these people are hired to go and lay cable through basically through state parks, for reasons that you don't need to know. But they're laying cable for this giant company. We don't know. It's like networking or something, just along the ground. And they do it. They've got these little, like um, almost like old lady shopping carts, except instead of a, groceries, it's got a little spool with wire, and they just walk with this thing through the through these trails in the woods. But what holds the whole thing together is the sound of these little things when they walk with them you hear them like eee! it's like the little the little sound of the spool ongoing and the wheels trying to you know track through the through the woods it's it's obviously that's real sound right that's real that's oh, you weren't foleying that that was the sound of, that was no, pr- that's pr- the that that was sound hot. of these things right. <laughs> that's the sound of these carts. but it's so i can't tell you it's so real that when you hear something real in a movie, it's partly your documentary maker in there. You letting letting field sound yeah. happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it grounds it in a reality that oh, I am here in the woods with this guy who's wheeling this thing. And it was a level of reality. And I've been watching a lot of you know Netflix and stuff since uh, since COVID. You know, of these big production things, and nothing has struck me the way that sound did in terms of pulling me mm. in. To the reality that I'm that I'm there, and I'm like, oh, it's this low key, low key reality sound. Even baseball now, because which I watch when you watch it on Fox, they amplify like where the the pitcher throws the ball, and you hear, like it hits the glove. It's like, what is that? What baseball game do you go to and hear that? You know, they're amplifying it somehow or adding it in, and it was like so. There's something. That that understated level of reality grounds us into that, what to me is the is the team human vibe, which is, you know, it's, it's all here. It's just it's here. Just do less. Do less. Right. And- right.
2: Ultimately, are you, if you're trying to move people on, on the level of their human selves, there's nothing that'll do it more than, than what's around. I don't know why you have to... What's the point of reaching for the synthetic? we ha- i mean the, right. we're, we're we're made of the salt water like it's it's here you know like just just stick with it trust it yeah you exactly
0: know? it's like you know like if albert mazel's made a a uh, a feature film it would look like this right it's just like just leave the camera on let the people do the fucking things right and the magic will happen just leave right. it leave it a- right
2: <sighs> don't mess with it it's so true yeah <laughs> it's so true that's what the frederick Wiseman documentaries that's why i love His documentaries and anything, yeah, Hmm. that's just observational human behavior. It's endlessly fascinating. There's nothing really more you need to do. That's why, like, you know, I I grew up loving Herzog documentaries Hmm. because he does this incredible thing where he he just interviews someone and then they're done speaking and he just leaves the camera running and it's just kind of weird for a few seconds. And you know, they don't know if he's turned the camera off or not, and they're sort of looking and. Nothing, and then he inevitably in his in the film, he brings in like some cello music and it and or some vocal mm. music, whatever it starts to start to feel and but it's such a celebration i mean so I think some people look at that and they think he's making fun of of people or sort of making them look like buffoons or fools, and i've never I've always had the opposite reaction i I feel like he's giving a moment to sort of spirit after the what- whatever yeah. words have been said it's exactly. like let's let whatever energy is here, sit for a moment before we just cut to the next sound bite, totally. which is what so That's many documentaries do. Yeah,
0: I did that. Actually, I did that. And I copied him when I did at the end of Generation Like it was this documentary I made mm. for Frontline. And it's about these kids who do social media. And then at the very end, you know, there's this girl who's trying to get people to like her page and whatever. And she does her bit, she finishes it, and she puts down the camera. And it's the end of my documentary. And I just originally that we were going to end with her ending her bit, you know, okay, great. Sign up, you know, see you next week. Done. And it was like, we left our camera. It just happened to be on. And it was like seven or eight more seconds. She puts down the camera. She kind of sighs and she looks around. You can see on her face, she's thinking, you know, I guess I'm done. I guess I, yeah. But then that sort of, there's a moment of sadness of like, is that it? And 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 it was like, Oh my God, that's the best moment in the film. Just leave it. Just leave it, and we left yeah. it. And it's like it becomes. It became this for me. It was the whole reason to do the movie was for the three seconds of silence at the end. Yeah, you're right. Beautiful. But it's you know what that is. It's ground instead of figure. It's like the the which we're so bad at in the West. You know, you mm. watch an Eastern movie, you watch a Kurosawa movie, and it's like ninety percent that and ten percent action.
2: Right. <laughs> Right? Why is it that we're yeah? That's so. That's so not how we do things in the in the West. No,
0: <laughs> I win. I win. Right? You know, it's like I get it. I get it. It's it's, it's who we are. It's it's, a, it's it's very sweet in a way. It's sweet. It's childlike.
2: Yeah. I have a question for you because we yeah. we mentioned religion earlier. You know, in, in passing, we were talking about it briefly, but. I've been hearing uh, people saying oh, religions coming back or you know people are people are like going back to religion. I-, I wondered if that's something on your radar at all or if you where you are right right now on the role or the, the need for for faith in this world. Do you is that something you actively think about and, and are all about these days or is it is your notion of soul kind of absorbed that for you?
0: Well, the notion of soul satisfies a lot of that for me I mean the problem with soul as a construct is most people think oh so the soul is a thing that lives after you're dead or floats out of your body as some as some ghost and it was weird I was watching a lot of these really bad viking series and and over there's like five different kind of viking things in netflix amazon land and i actually was watching one and i watched the second season of another and thought it was the second season of the first one but it was two totally different series that's how similar they are to be it's like some dashing guy with a mustache and you know with a blonde you know viking girlfriend fighting against uh you know the the british and the island of whatever that is so that's how good i am there was a barbarians one i confused with both of them (laughs) so it's all it's all the same thing but they they talk about like they like make an they they make a pledge to someone and then it's like totally inappropriate to maintain the pledge but they keep the pledge because of their honor mm-hmm. and i i started to understand honor as soul in other words like if you go against what you've pledged if you go against that without at least getting forgiven by the person you've pledged to i could see why it's like you've dedicated your soul to something And now you're compromising your soul. So it started to feel very kind of Maya Angelou to me, the way Mm -hmm. she's like, you know, if you're in a room and someone like makes a crack about a disparaging remark about gay people and you don't stand up, part of you dies. You know, Mm. and I really, I, I buy that. That's part of your soul dies. And your soul is not necessarily some God, religion, Jesus, Moses thing, but your soul is the intentionality of your existence. It's, Mm -hmm. it's your, your faith that you have will of some kind, you know, and where are you directing that will that you are impacting things. So once you realize that you are impacting, that you have volition that requires a moral framework, there's no, right, uh, at least as I understand it, either that, or you move into total weirdo, you know, weird ass Peter Thiel, self sovereignty, something else, you know, some, something I don't understand. So yeah, so I don't see it. I mean, I, a lot of people will get it from religion, and I don't mind religion because it's like I don't mind outsourcing a lot of this moral work to professional moral moralizers like the rabbis or the right. priests who really right <laughs> churned it up. It's, it's right. wrong. Just don't. You know, I don't have to work that out. You know, you know what I mean for myself. I, I trust them. It's just it's too weird. Don't do it. You know. But some things can be automatic, you know, and religion's good for that. So you just know I can do this, or you do the religion that you are given, or that, and and by doing it, you end up absorbing some of the almost the mimetic charge that's that's in it. You know, you get something out of it that way. But but yeah, I I I do think I do think it's going to be our only our best defense against techno-capitalism, you know, against all three pillars, you know, there's this sort of accelerationist Marxism, which is scary and unforgiving. There's neoliberalism, which is scary and unforgiving. And now there's this sort of authoritarian blood and soil, which is scary and (laughs) and unforgiving. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I feel like some sort of soul work, some sort of of respecting the sanctity of ourselves and one another's existence is sort of what what keeps you from either uh, any of those three uh, anti-human poles.
2: Yeah, I like that. I, but does it align for you with um, any kind of metaphysical read of the of the physical world? Because when you first responded to the film, you were mentioning this idea. You, you read into the you know this idea that we've been talking about of, of noise, these what I call them tiny mistakes, in the, in the in in silico in the film, as you know, potentially some sort of sign from somewhere else, or right, or the, or like yeah. it was some sort of. Um, you know, indication that, that, that this could be a logic or a rubric from another source. I wondered, I wanted to hear more of your thoughts about that. I, I certainly think it's a big mystery. I don't know where I go with it, but I wondered what your thoughts are.
0: I think it's the, it's, it's, well, what they call the original sin, you know, it's the, uh, the origin. I, again, this is not scientific. So shoot me. Although there is a scientist who says it now. Uh, he wrote a book called times arrow, uh, 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 physicist, I think that consciousness precedes matter. Mm-hmm. I think there was awareness first, and it is expressing itself through matter and through us. I don't think of consciousness as an emergent phenomena of complex atoms and biology. If it comes first, it's a lot easier for me to understand Big Bang and physics and evolution and everything else. So when I see the errors in your schema. And, this, uh, and, and the schema of life, I see the errors as, oh, there's – that's the energy. That's – like I see life like those – um you know those documentaries where you see the little baby turtles and they get hatched and they run to the ocean? Yeah. You know, that and, they're, and that energy. And yeah. I remember that energy. What is that? Of it's undeniable.
2: Just, uh, it's there. It's, it's, it's happening. It's undeniable, yeah. right? Yeah.
0: And when I saw that first like mention of, oh, well, they made an error and that's how we got this, I was like, oh, that's it. That's – Yeah. That's the sign of life. That's the sign of of this formal cause for biology. It's the right. soul in right. this process.
2: Right. Yeah, and it's in everything. It's in every you know complex physical entity. It's this kind of rumbling up from this like fountain of of, of something that keeps percolating and and pushing things in different directions. It's sort of I, I've, I've just come to sort of see it as as this grand mystery that I'm okay with because, and I'm I'm actually very happy for that it's there. It's very reassuring that it's there because I don't even need to know it. I don't need to I don't need to wrap my head around what it is, where it comes from, who it is. I just I'm deeply reassured ultimately as a human that there's a a great fountain, you know, inside all of us that for the for the time being feels rather untouchable in the in the technocratic sense
0: right i think it is untouchable thank god you know (laughs) i think it i think it's it's it maybe it could be killed i don't know that it's permanent you know but i think it defies metrics i think it defies quantization exactly yeah and that's again that's re that's reassuring it is yeah profoundly so. Yeah. And where we touch it, where we play with it is, and that's why it's so interesting, you move from documentary to um, fiction. We play with it in fiction. That's why I'm in the similar, I'm following you there. I mean, I don't want to do another nonfiction work for a while. I want to do, I was thinking to do a play, but now because putting up a play is so hard, I'm thinking to actually write it as a graphic novel, sort of a play script as a graphic novel, and then do it as a play after. Because graphic novels you can do in a theatrical Sort of theatrical way, yes. So I might, I might play with it that way first to sort of get it down on paper. Because when you to write a play, it's sort of like writing a movie. It's like you, you can't help but think as you're writing it, oh yeah, I'm really gonna get to shoot this. I'm really gonna get to stage this <laughs> scene. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> so optimistic to write it. it I is mean, which is why optimistic. it's a good exercise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but I, you did. But
2: Are you- I, yeah, I wrote, I wrote my movie to. Knowing that I I would have to get it all together in in our backyard in Upstate New York, so yeah, it was it that's a that's a more constrained way to write for sure. I'm like, okay, how what could be possible, you know? Exactly. But now, yeah, now I'm trying to write stuff that wouldn't be in in you know in our backyard, and that's it is very optimistic. But you know, I think listen, I think you after Survival of the Richest, you could you could go with the fiction inside one of those bunkers. That's a place where I haven't seen. You know, in fiction yet that you, you might have some insight into. Totally.
0: <laughs> Thanks so much for doing this, for for doing your movies, for being on Team Human.
2: Thank you for for watching the movies and responding to me. I didn't I, I didn't even have to go and make a music video for one of your friends' bands to get him to write to you yeah, as oh, I did. Yeah, of course when, you know, not.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> of course you, not. You watched the movies. You wrote. I really appreciate it, Doug. Thank you.
0: Uh well, I appreciate. I and thank appreciate you for you all your work them.
2: over the years. It's truly uh, you've truly inspired. Many of the philosophies I've, I've come to believe into the, to my core, so I, I really appreciate that.
0: Oh, well, thank you. You've been on Team Human. Our guest today was filmmaker Noah Hutton. You can find out more about him and his movies at NoahHutton.com. You can also find out about him and all of our guests at TeamHuman.fm, where you can also become a supporting member of the team. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. I will see you in the kibitz room. And you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.